If you think back to the physician office of years ago, there was a doctor in an office and there was a nurse in an office and the doctor wrote a prescription and the nurse handed it to you and that's kind of you went on your merry way. Medicine isn't delivered that way any longer. Two years ago, a patient coming into an ER was handed an antiquated list of treatment sites and told to, you know, pretty much go find one, and they were on their own. And now, um, hospital doctors are so much more in tune, and screens come up with different prompts, and people show up to, to try to impact. So it's, it's just been a, um, a wonderful thing to see, but then when you see the demand versus the availability, you kind of go back to that. We have a long way to go. It's actually a perfect transition to a question I know Bing had for Dr. Beecham. Yeah, before that, I have a quick follow-up question. When you're talking about looking at um, other screens like... Vicki Kistler of the Allentown Health Department, speaking at a recent roundtable we held. It seems like some years have a singular issue or theme or societal problem that gets elevated above the rest in the public sphere and thus the media. Something that really sticks out in the news cycle. In 2018, I would argue, that was the opioid epidemic. And for good reason. The crisis yielded a record number of drug deaths in 2017, data from the Centers for Disease Control that came out in 2018. The problem was reaching the suburbs and adolescents and legislative chambers. Pennsylvania's governor issued a disaster declaration and formed a special team to coordinate response efforts. The government started distributing free life-saving Narcan here and there. The Associated Press partnered with Pennsylvania newsrooms to produce a massive reporting package on it called State of Emergency. And then in 2019, it seemed like the conversation, at least the loud public one, quieted down. With any topic covered by our newspaper, um, it, it is kind of driven by what's happening in the community and what's happening with leaders. Um, so in 2018, you had press conference after press conference, you had um, officials launching initiatives, you know, Blue, Blue Guardian, things like that in the Lehigh Valley. That's Laurie Mason Schrader, the Morning Call's Lehigh County courts reporter. Um, in 2019, a lot of that did drop off. I mean, we have um, some free Narcan days. Um, you know, the reality is less people are dying, and so there's less headlines. I wrote the most, one of our more recent opioid stories, which was for the first time in five years, the Lehigh Valley actually saw a decrease in the number of drug overdose deaths. That certainly doesn't mean the crisis is even close to being over. There are still hundreds of people dying from drug overdoses, um, but authorities were pleased to, to learn that this was the first time in five years that drugs seemed to be scaling back at least a bit. Pam Lehman, our Northampton County Courts reporter, also wrote about preliminary data from the state's opioid team, showing that drug deaths are down in the state 23 percent from 2017 to 2018. And that number appears to be holding steady. Yeah, and I remember talking to people after we found the statistics for this past year um, that it's appeared to have peaked and now it's coming down, but a lot of them were warning us that it could come back up again, that it's too early to tell if we've kind of passed the worst of the epidemic. Bing Huang, our health reporter. Last year, The Morning Call held a series of roundtable discussions with local and state experts on the opioid crisis, from doctors to public health officials to pharmacists. And we learned about a whole web of obstacles facing us. 
we were told it might be decades until the tide turns. It's been a year, and so we invited four of those experts back to see where we're at. This is the Morning Call Podcast. I'm Kayla Dwyer. I pulled Laurie, Pam, and Bing into the studio to talk about what we heard at this roundtable last week. The roundtable itself was long and thorough, but we're breaking it down here into our main takeaways. First, I personally wondered what we should attribute this preliminary drop in drug deaths to. Could it really be that this massive public campaign in 2018 really worked? Here's Bing. I think we've written a lot about how much funding has been poured into getting more people treatment. Uh, County money for getting people short-term and long-term treatment have increased. Hospitals are partnering with addiction treatment centers so that they're working together um, to provide uh, treatment. And I remember one major one is uh, Lehigh Valley Health Network is partnering with addiction centers so that when they get um, people who overdose in the emergency room, they're then connected to somebody who's in a treatment center so that you know, it's all coordinated. And I remember last year I wrote another story about St. Luke's treating their patients who have infections that are addiction-related and also getting them into treatment as well so that the medical piece of it is connected to the counseling and the addiction treatment. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, those efforts um, have, are ongoing. There's a couple terms you might hear used to describe these new ways of approaching treatment. One is called medication-assisted treatment. MAT, where doctors work with addiction treatment specialists to combine medical treatment and counseling. Another is warm handoff, just a way to describe different members of your healthcare team, say a medical assistant and a doctor, actually talking together with you in the room about your treatment plan. And there's also a greater use of this emerging model of care, actually a name I had never even heard of, called the hub and spoke model. So the hub and spoke model is um, connecting the intensive treatment you need when you're, you know, just over when you've just overdosed or you need intensive therapy. So that's like inpatient treatment or intensive outpatient treatment where you're spending most of your time in treatment. And then, you know, people kind of can graduate out of that. They get better and then they just need some kind of maintenance treatment. Like they need to see a doctor maybe once a month or maybe once a week, depending on how much care they need. Um, So the idea is that when people are done with the intensive care, they're then connected to the maintenance care. And then sometimes, you know, life happens, you get into an accident, your addiction comes back, and then you need to be brought back to the intensive care. Um, And what that model is, is coordination between the two. So people are not falling through the cracks. It's not like you go from intensive care to, to go to no care at all. And then you kind of fall off the wagon. It's essentially a way to facilitate medical-assisted treatment. Dr. Jillian Beecham of Lehigh Valley Health Network was particularly passionate about it. Whatever we can do to improve access to care, uh, I think has been a a huge step in the right direction. And so our our goals are to figure out what the barriers are to doing that, uh, to push that forward, uh, and to make sure that, that we're able to meet patients where they are, whether it's in the rural setting or in the urban setting, uh, whether it's at their specialist office or their primary care office or their psychiatrist's office, uh, we can meet people where they're already getting care and try to provide medication to support that recovery trajectory to them. A big tool used in this model are certified recovery specialists. 
This isn't a new job, but we certainly see them used much more commonly today than we did, say, two years ago. Often these are people who have gone through or are in recovery themselves. So this isn't someone who's clinical, who's coming in with treatment or, you know, to give you an assessment or to place you. This is just someone simply to speak with you about their own experience in recovery and to instill some hope, which makes a huge difference a lot of the time. Betsy Martellucci is the clinical director at Mid-Atlantic Rehabilitation Services in Fountain Hill. And they work out of laundromats and they work out of parks and they work out of cars and they meet people in fast food restaurants and um, they do whatever they need to do to support um, wherever that patient may be. A third major piece of the response to the opioid crisis that has made a lot of improvement in the last year is access to Narcan, an overdose reversing drug. You know, it's a lot easier to get Narcan now. A lot more people are carrying it. There was actually a campaign um, like hashtag why I carry Narcan this past year. And true, the government has given out a lot of Narcan, 40,000 doses, saving about 9,000 lives, according to the 2018 figures from the state. And the Secretary of Health wrote a statewide prescription for everybody. But that doesn't mean it's always free. There are events where you can get it for free. But if, you're, if you don't happen upon an event where health officials are giving it out and you go to a drugstore and just say, I'd like to get Narcan, you're probably going to be told, well, if your insurance covers it, this is how much it's going to be. If your insurance doesn't cover it, you know, you'll have to find another way to get it. That's some of the progress that's been made. But we have other problems creeping up the pipeline. I think the point that our panelists uh, were trying to get through this year was that, um, yes, opioid deaths are still a problem. Opioid addiction is still a problem. Um, But there's other things. Meth is on the rise. Alcohol um, addiction is on the rise. So I think... Maybe when they were saying, you know, it's not quite the opioid crisis anymore, maybe the addiction crisis, substance abuse disorder crisis, um, maybe we should be widening our focus. And, you know, authorities had told us that in past roundtable discussions that there's quite often this vacuum that happens when you're focusing all your attention on one drug. Other drugs will, will creep into the picture because they are easier to get or provide different effects. or So that was something that authorities had talked to us about before. But I think at this more recent roundtable was when we got this really definitive meth use is up sharply. Cocaine seems to be following on the heels of that. And then um, Vicki Kistler's impassioned plea about alcohol and how many people that affects, that was really eye-opening for me as well, something that, quite frankly, we don't pay a lot of attention to. Start a conversation, take out a press release, do anything you want about opioids right now, and you reach a particular audience, but it's that same audience that doesn't find it offensive to drink to the point that you take an Uber home every night because you don't want a DUI, Mm -hmm. or uh, the fact that you can't watch a sporting event or a commercial without an alcohol advertisement. And even sitting around tables with young people and their parents and their families, it isn't socially unacceptable to share the story of how you were young and you drove to New Jersey because the drinking age was was lower and by the grace of God you got home somehow. Or I drank boxed wine until I had to be carried home from a frat party. 
Um, but nobody sits around that same table and says, well, the first time I, you know, I shot drugs or the first time I, you know, snorted crack. So we, we've made the alcohol use, abuse, and dependency not only socially acceptable, but a badge of honor. Another problem creeping up in a big way comes as a result of people dealing with addiction using dirty or shared needles. What keeps me up at night is uh, the infectious complications of injection drug use. And I think we have a wave of infectious issues coming our way over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years that we're not preparing for adequately. I think she's talking about um, over time, if you continue your addiction, your likelihood of developing some kind of serious disease increases. Um, Some examples could be, you know, uh, sharing needles that are unclean, so you're, you know, you have someone else's disease, or... um, she was also talking about if you um, inject yourself with a needle that's just dirty, there's bacteria in it, you can develop infections. And over time, that's going to become more and more serious. You know, if you continuously get infections, you're going to have a serious chronic issue and that um, you're going to have all these people dealing with serious medical issues because they've had addictions that have gone on for maybe a decade, maybe more than a decade, and that's going to be a huge burden on the health system. So she's kind of looking forward at the progression of the medical issues that will accumulate. And, and she did mention um, studies on Vietnam veterans who, um, you know, years later, looking at that population, they had developed, um, I think it was hepatitis C, she said. And I think, I'm not a medical reporter, but I, I think she said some of those diseases take a long time. They, they may remain dormant in your body for a while and then eventually show up. And so that's why we're looking, you know, she said 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future mm-hmm. of this wave of infectious diseases. And what's to be done about that? In the current legal landscape, there are a few things doctors already do. They teach patients about wound care and how to recognize infections. They clean their needles sometimes. They advise them not to inject alone. Right now, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh each have a technically illegal needle exchange program sanctioned by local authorities. In some future legal landscape, there may come a time when the entire state sanctions needle exchange programs but it's a big maybe. For, so Ray Baroshansky from the Department of Health was um, talking about moving the needle on harm reduction, as in needle exchanges. Needle exchanges are something that we've been talking about for a long time. The, the medical professionals seem to agree that that's one of the main things that could stop the spread of disease. I mean, you know, syringes are hard to come by. They're expensive, and um, people who have addiction issues are are sharing them or reusing them over and over. And so everyone agrees that if people had clean needles, there would be less infectious diseases. Um, And yet we can't seem to get a needle exchange. There's just so much stigma and so much, uh, I don't know if it's political or cultural. And it's still illegal. Right, right. I think that the Secretary of Health and all of us agree that harm reduction is good public health. Mm-hmm. We recognize that, but we also recognize that being a part of the executive branch, um, we also have to stay within the guidelines of the state statutes and regulations, and that's sometimes a difficult place to be. You can hear this in, in his answers to us. They're talking about it. They think it's a good idea. They're trying to get it done, but I didn't hear any definitive plans. And when we asked our Lehigh Valley um, folks at the roundtable, they said, you know, no, 
we're, we're not having one here. And I think Vicki, in her special way that she does, <laughs> she said, no one questions where, diabetes, where diabetics get or put their needles, <clears throat> but they do where an addict gets or puts their needle. And we need, to, we need to get that all on the same page. A needle's a needle, you know, a person's person. But we, we just are so far from that yet. Well, so I think because with this disease specifically, um, the symptoms of this disease are confused for the character of the person. Whereas in other diseases, we are able to identify the symptoms and see them as separate from the character or the worth of the human being. This disease often is confused in terms of the behavioral symptoms of this disease speaks to the worthiness of the person. And until that education and, and that stigma gets blown away, then I think it is. Harm reduction is, a, is an uphill battle until that's, until that's taken care of. I'll end with one more positive development. Vicki Kistler told us the Allentown Health Department will be launching an opioid death review team, something akin to a child death review team, which is very common. The team would look at patterns and life experiences that might have contributed to someone's death from overdosing on opioids or other substances, and scrutinize the care that that person did or didn't receive. It felt like for the first time in a long time we had these officials who were optimistic about and the crisis abating a bit, not ending, not, you know, we're done, let's walk away from the table, but they're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, but everyone was very careful to say, you know, yes, we're, while well, we're thrilled that drug deaths are down and, and we feel like we're making progress with treatment and and addiction, that there's still a really long way to go, and everyone was hesitant to say, yes, it's over. I think it's really important to, to track overdose deaths, but I think we need to, to keep in mind that that's the tip of the iceberg, right? There's this huge rest of the iceberg there, uh, and I'm hopeful that we can continue to address the rest of the iceberg. So, yes, it's important, you know, we absolutely This has been the Morning Call Podcast. I'm Kayla Dwyer. Thanks for listening.